Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. I um, guess we're going to be talking about Elizabeth Bishop's poem, Crusoe in England. And Andrew, I believe you're going to speak. Uh, Elizabeth Bishop has um, been described as a poet's poet. It does seem to have a broad appeal. People who write different types of poems and read different types of poems always seem to agree that there's something singular. In 1911, <laughs> and she had a... <laughs> 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 she was born in the central part of um, Massachusetts in 1911, and she did have a tumultuous um, childhood. Her father died during her infancy. I believe she was only eight months old when her father, who was a builder, a successful builder, passed on. And then um, her mother ended up being institutionalized by the time Elizabeth Bishop, I think, was about five. She was Um, in a mental institution. Correct. Yeah, in central Central Massachusetts, she was institutionalized for a mental illness. And I believe the mother stayed there for um, for her life, um, or most of it. So the young Elizabeth Bishop um, lived for a time in Nova Scotia with her mother's parents. But then there was some legal maneuver, and her late father's family gained custody of her. And this was something she personally was unhappy about. But she returned to live in Worcester. And one of her um, best-known poems in The Waiting Room is about an experience shortly um, after she moved back to, to Worcester. But she, um, she stayed home a lot. She read. She was interested in gardening. She had bad asthma, and that kept her out of school for, um, for stretches of time. But she was um, a promising student, very successful student when she was at school and eventually found her way to Poughkeepsie, New York, where she um, went to college at Vassar. She um, entered Vassar in 1929 and she wanted to study musical composition and performance. That was initially her major, but she had this, um, and I didn't know about this until recently, she had a crippling fear of performance. This performance anxiety convinced her to become an English major. So she did that, and she was um, interested in particular in 17th century um, poetry and and fiction. Uh, During her senior year, she was introduced to Marianne Moore, who became something of an older female mentor. Um, Marianne Moore was also an alumna of Vassar. You know, Elizabeth Bishop moved to New York City and attended for a short period of time medical school before she gave herself over to to traveling and writing. Um, She did have independent income from early adulthood on, so she didn't have to take a job. So this freed her up to travel the world. She spent, I believe, several, two decades maybe living in Brazil with a partner who she um, she met during her, her travels. She eventually, at the end of her life, moved to the Boston area and, and taught at, at Harvard College, taught at Harvard University. She didn't write all that much compared to other canonical poets. She only published a handful of short books over her lifetime, and I think a few collected poems have come out, and some of the uncollected poems um, as well. So 
So we're talking today about Crusoe in England. This poem was published in 1972, and it appeared in her last collection, Geography 3. Although, um, according to one Bishop scholar I was I was reading, um, there are early drafts of the poem that date back to 1934. Wow. Shortly after Elizabeth Bishop first read Daniel Defoe's novel, which she did while she was at Vassar, but she never reread it. So oh. in, in the early 70s, when she um, she returned to the poem to try to make something of it, she relied purely on her textual memory mm-hmm. of Robinson Crusoe, the um, the novel which I thought was really, really quite interesting. Oh, the one jump in I was going to do is the circumstances, as I recall, in the early 30s, she was living in the Elizabeth Islands on Cuttyhunk, Buzzards Bay, yeah. south of Nantucket. Yes. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've actually After been to Cuttyhunk. And then curiously, you know, the local poet, Robert Kelly, he also, through his wife, Charlotte Mandel, spends summers on Cuttyhunk, and I guess has done that for the last couple decades. Cuttyhunk, um, yeah, she was on that island at, right after graduating um, Vassar and, and lived there with um, a few women, I believe. Maybe um, Mary McCarthy may have been one of them, a few literary mm. friends. And she relished the um, opportunity to live in a um, sociality of women. Well, Vassar at that point was a woman's college. Correct. Yeah. So she makes sense coming out of that. You're right. So Crusoe in England is this riff on Daniel Defoe's early 18th century novel. Um, And the novel, of course, is about a, um, a young sailor who shipwrecks onto a remote island off of the coast of South America. I think that, um, uh, that it was based on a shipwreck off the coast of Chile. Yeah, it was a guy named uh, Alex Selkirk. Principally, it was based on that. But I believe Dufault put Robinson Crusoe in the Caribbean, Hmm. sort of in keeping with sort of that English obsession with Bermuda and the Caribbean, and, you know, following from Shakespeare's The Tempest. The tropics, that part of their empire. Hmm. Um, so it's set in the Caribbean. So let's talk about it a bit. I think it's a it's a great poem for the moment in terms of finding oneself islanded or all islanded. How did the poem like resonate with you guys? Well, the one thing I had to to say, you know, more in terms of contextualizing it, I guess, you know, is that it comes out of a early 19th, really 19th century, mid 19th century Robert Browning. It's a dramatic monologue. Oh. Yeah. And it's very much like that medium that Browning perfected. And it's about the length of one of Browning's monologues, you know, and it has a similar flavor also. And I'm not sure that that is necessarily pointed out a lot in relation to this poem. But I think that's important. And it's a poem in the first person, which I guess for me relates too to where Elizabeth Bishop was coming out of that clutch of writers roughly around Robert Lowell and Mary McCarthy that and um, I think they it's called the confessional school right poetry that's right yeah but this is definitely yeah yeah, yeah. this is definitely hitting it a, a little bit askant 
Um, but there are kind of like, you know, shards of a kind of confessional ethos that I guess one can tease out of it. The one thing I would say is, you know, curiously, one of Robert Lowell's nicknames or his nickname, you know, coming up was Caliban, <laughs> who features in The Tempest. That's right. And this is kind of Calibanian terrain, you know, being on an island, um, imprisoned on an island, etc. And also the sort of the wild man, which we've touched on in, in podcasts past. Although unlike um, Prospero and Caliban, the speaker in this poem seems to have a pretty equitable relationship with Friday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where perhaps some of that autobiographical stamp can be teased out is my understanding is that this poem was written long after her girlfriend or wife um, committed suicide the Brazilian correct friend yeah so it's so well Friday dies of measles right oh yeah at the end of the poem it's kind of the finale of of the poem it's the final line, right? Yeah. There's there's grief all over the stanza. And Friday, my dear Friday, died of measles 17 years ago come March. Right. And also, of course, the whole thing of 1492, the vast displacement of illnesses, of diseases, of viruses oh. uh-huh. to the new world that killed you know a quarter of the native population or more i don't know what the figures are offhand pocahontas is an example of a native american who moved back to england with john smith and died i think of smallpox quite young pretty common for native peoples to die of these western diseases in so many of um elizabeth bishop's poems she is in a V or we are in a V some sort of vehicle like a dented bus huh. driving through the night from um, Nova Scotia to or driving through the morning afternoon and night from Nova Scotia to Boston in the moose the boat in um, the fish you know the fishing boat with the uh, with the little motor and this is uh, this is similar but there's a you know the breakdown of the machine and of the boat of the technology and oh. So finds himself unstranded. I think this poem, in part, one interpretation is that it's about the life of an artist. I think it's very conscious of being about creative life. Everything um, that um, the the um, the subject does in the poem is an act of creation, right? Um, painting the sheep and naming everything, creating the uh, the flute with the knife. Oh yeah. You're creating aesthetics to live within. It's a poem about building a world. Hmm. Right. Like a lot of the poem is description. It just, mm-hmm. just yeah, beautiful description. Yeah. Yeah, her, um, I guess it would be the third stanza, starts with uh, the two words, my island. My hmm. island seemed to be a sort of cloud dump. All the hemispheres leftover clouds arrived and hung above the craters their parched throats were hot to touch was that why it rained so much <laughs> you know, the, of the uh, of the great rhymes 
Yeah, yeah, from Bernadette, the couplet. I mean, there's anguish, there, there's there's suffering, there, there's loneliness, there's mention of self-pity, there are the terrors of dreams, right. the estrangement, but uh, the life is created, um, recreated into a meaningful form through uh, through artistic creation, and I love how the uh, the knife, the knife is likened to a crucifix. Uh, in, yeah, in the right. final stanza that's lost its power because it was through the knife that the um, the artist in this case was able to create this um this life this place to live yeah well yeah i i would uh my mom had an interesting observation at a point in her 60s i guess she found herself in australia on a grant um, so she spent time in Australia, I think about six months, like a long period of time, three to six months. I forget the exact amount of time. But she had an interesting observation about Aboriginal art, about huh. the Aboriginal dream, uh, you know, not dream songs like, but the dream lines, I guess they're called. And she said, you know, Sam, the Aboriginal art works perfectly in Australia but when you remove it and put it on a wall at the Metropolitan, mm. it uh. loses all of its context, and the context is its magic. So the knife removed from its place oh, on the island as a, as a tool for survival, you know, would lose its, you know, more than patina. And then also Myander standing and it's interesting actually the end of the poem where she talks about where he talks about she talks about the narrator talks about these different mm -hmm. implements that were saved from the island like his parasol and his i guess their goat trousers and and the knife that the that the museum wants them you know very similar to like the archive you know um, where the, the libraries want your work at the end of it all, you know, and the shits and shards of how your work came out, you know, emerged. But I sort of saw the knife as being like the, um, what Robert Creeley said, you know, a poet has, which is this pen, this yeah. thing that will travel, yes. you know, and that you can do it anywhere. And that the knife also... I guess might be related to one of the observations that Sparrow made relative to the nature of poetry from other kind of ways of, of putting, of writing words. And that is related to concision or condensare, you know, as Pound would say, well, you know, on. that one cuts away. You're on, man. That's, that's great. I'm noticing in that stanza, now I live here, another island, that doesn't seem like one, but who decides? My blood was full of them, my brain bred islands. But the archipelago has petered out. I'm old. I'm bored, too, drinking my real tea, surrounded by uninteresting lumber. Drinking my real tea. I always read that, drinking reality. <laughs> <laughs> or drinking real estate, one or the other, or both. Um, the mm -hmm. imaginative collapses into the, into the quote-unquote real at this moment in the poem for me. Um, yeah. The knife, the shelf, it reeked of meaning like a crucifix. It lived. 
How many years did I beg it, implore it not to break? I knew each nick and scratch by heart, the bluish blade, the broken tip, the lines of wood grain on the handle. Now it won't look at me at all. The living soul has dribbled away. My eyes rest on it and pass on. Hmm. It just it just doesn't work here, right? It, it doesn't. It, the spell um. spell no longer works. Something collapses. I don't know. What, what is it exactly? Or maybe if it is the poet's pen, like Sam was saying, maybe, that maybe Elizabeth Bishop is saying, I'm too old to write poems anymore. I've lost my touch. I mean, I think that she wrote there, you know, she <clears throat> came back to this poem, what, like seven years before she died. Um, hmm. So she was already sort of in her uh, later period. And, and I guess I would say that this poem is hits, you know, so it's not a uh, so it's a little bit of a false lead from an autobiographical standpoint. Personally, really dug the part where she talks about. And so I made the homebrew. I the homebrew. awful, fizzy, stinging stuff that went straight to my head and play my homemade flute. I think it had the weirdest scale on earth. And dizzy whoop and dance among the goats. And then, you know, homebrew, homebrew, but aren't we all? This idea of all of us making our own islands, you know, and within an archipelago of islands, within an archipelago of other people with whom we commune or form a kind of line, but also that these, like uh, like the evolution mm. of Hawaii, new islands are forming out ahead. You know, there's new poets mm. coming up and mm. you begin to lose track and lose track. You lose interest. You lose mm. your capacity to be surprised. You lose mm. your line of, I don't know, your line of outwardness you know you become insular and maybe that's when you um when you get sucked up into the island you know get sucked up into hmm. get get pulled away from your vision hmm. really I, think the, I think the end of the poem is um also um a reflection on fame huh i huh. The, the local museum wanting your things um you know even wanting mundane things like some trousers it was the, like that moment when Allen Ginsberg sold his the sneakers he wore to Japan in the 60s to Columbia Library for like two million dollars you know yeah, that's actually the one conversation I had with uh, Allen Ginsberg was on that subject you know the one real conversation I had with him it was the uh, the birthday of Daniel Berrigan the priest and activist. It was his 70th birthday. And Allen Ginsberg was sitting by himself, so I went over and talked to him. And then we ended up talking about how he just sold his archives to Stanford for a million dollars. Because he tried to sell them to Columbia. Columbia said, yeah, we'll take them for free. We won't pay you, but we're happy to take everything you've collected your entire life and we won't pay you. And he went to Columbia, you know. So then Stanford offered him a million. So guess what? He took the million. But he said to me, uh, a million dollars ain't what it used to be. I mean, as I vividly remember that. And uh, because, um, you know, they take out taxes. By the time you get the million dollars, it's not so much. 
and it doesn't buy what it used to buy. But the reason he did it is because his stepmother was old and couldn't, she needed a place to live. So he bought this, uh, he bought Larry Rivers' old uh, studio, I think, on 14th Street and had an elevator for his stepmother. That's why, supposedly why he sort of, you know, sold out and left this tenement he'd been living in for decades and moved into a real fancy uh, uh, house. And then he died pretty soon after that. Yeah, he died. But right, you're but well, it wasn't just his uh, sneakers, but that I remember that too. The yeah. image of uh, that that Allen Ginsberg had been saving his sneakers in a uh, storage unit for decades, just in case. Well, I think of that moment occurs for the um, the knife wielding artist in this poem. I, the, the sale of everything to the local museum. Um, and I think the, the fame is stultifying for the creativity. Mm-hmm. I think the, uh, the artist here yearns for those years of obscurity, islanded alone, you know, out there, um, unrecognized. Hmm. And, you know, looks back and sees the value of that for, I guess, for, for art and for, for um, a style of being in the world. Was she that famous? She had won Pulitzer Prize and um, oh. also of the National Book Award by this point. So um, I, don't, I don't know if she was a household name, but literary types definitely knew her and read her works. I think she misses Friday. You know, within the poem, there's a resonance of very plain and at the same time, slightly cagey sort of speech that Crusoe enters into relative to Friday. Just when I thought I couldn't stand it a minute longer, Friday came. Accounts of that have everything all wrong. Friday was nice. Friday was nice and we were friends. If only he had been a woman. I wanted to propagate my kind, and so did he, I think, poor boy. He'd pet the baby goats sometimes and race with them and carry one around. Pretty to watch. He had a pretty body. You know, and I think he misses Friday. Friday's just um, died from measles. I think there's also perhaps, and again, this is sort of a slant um confessional kind of thing where she's just saying i just lost my lover or you know i've lost my lover and that this was another stanchion or another line that held her to her vision to her self Mm. to her you know i want to say garden you know which one can say a lot about if one thinks of the island as a garden Mm. again you know going back not only to our discussion of Bernadette and the notion of Eden, the notion of a paradisical state, but also to Voltaire, you know, Candide, oh, Candide, uh, you know, the advice is cultivate your garden. Right. I think that's all in this poem. Yeah, I think that's all over this poem, the cultivation of the garden. Mm -hmm. It's sort of striking how unparadisical this island is. I mean, one thing that I thought is like, uh, Crusoe is a complainer. He complains about the island, then he leaves the island, and he complains about England. He's never happy. Uh, and um, and this part really got to me where it said, um, at the end of the second stanza, she says, 
though the sky, she says, a glittering hexagon of rollers closing and closing in, but never quite glittering and glittering, though the sky was mostly overcast. The sky uh-huh. was overcast in, in the Caribbean? This is the only island in the Caribbean with overcast. It's like that guy in Little Abner that walked around with that cloud over, black cloud over his head, Joe Biftlick. He was like, he always had bad luck and he was always miserable. And there was a cloud hanging over his head. That's kind of like Crusoe, wherever he goes. It's overcast, even in the Caribbean. And it's also kind of like if the sea is glittering and glittering. Well, actually, if the sky's overcast, it's difficult for waves to be glittering because there's no light phenomena to cause it. It's a little mystifying, that uh, section, like that painting by Magritte, where the house is lit up. It's darkness, it's night, but the house is weirdly lit lit up as if by some unnatural light. Mm. Yeah, nice observation. I think it, there's some parallel in this. And I guess also the glittering is, is, you know, a glittering hexagon of rollers and then closing and closing in, but never quite glittering and glittering. So this glittering, glittering, I think also has that sense of what is it that Sutter found in California in 49, this, the glittering of the gold, you know, the mm. sense of the promise, the um, mm. Mm. this sort of titillating surface. But also this hexagon is sort of interesting. Um, yeah, I know. It was hard to picture. Rollers are mean waves, right? Is that right? Yeah. I think this is this is Crusoe using the knife and be, you know, or the pen rather and being a poet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dig it. But it's funny that you mentioned that because um, I was going to say something um, germane to what we've been discussing that uh, drew from Buddhism. Can I share it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just wanted to respond to what Sparrow said about the kvetching, the complaining. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. It's um, chronic or perennial through the, the poem. And this, by the way, was um, Elizabeth Bishop's longest poem. But I see all of that as the reactive mind. There are all these complaints grounded in things that don't go right. Weather patterns, um, loneliness, right? Um, Boredom, all of these, um, these forms. He attacks uh, the volcanoes on her island. I had 52 miserable small volcanoes. I could climb with a few slithery strides. I mean, even the volcano she's against. But there's anger there, too. But there's this subtle mind as well, in addition to the mm. reactive mind, where I, I think that like the, the homebrew, the playing of the flute with its otherworldly scale, the scale mm. that's never been heard. There are these moments of creative, subtle breakthrough. I really feel um, like I'm encountering two opposing forces in the consciousness of Robinson Crusoe as I read the, the, the narrative. And also, I think the kvetching makes it feel real. You know, if right. if he was talking about how great it was, paradisical in his paradise, it would sound like a, like a poem. <laughs> it would sound fake, sound artificial. But this sounds, you know, it reminds me of that, what is that famous poem by T.S. Eliot about the, the Magi? Of the Magi, I don't know what it's called, it's, but it's yeah, one I, of the Magi is uh, is narrating what it's like to be a Magi going to Jesus to give the gifts, 
and at the birth of Jesus, and and he's you know, and all he does is talk about complain. All he talks about right. is how it bad the weather the was. Of, it was the worst of the year. It was the it was the, the it was the it was the, the and, year, something like that. Yeah. And yet, you know, for such a gift, I would blah blah blah. Sort of ends up at the end. Yeah, yeah. which a little bit this does too. Where kind of Friday is is almost like in the role of the baby Jesus. Yeah. In, uh, in the other uh, poem, in the Magi poem. Huh. Because, you know, really the poem ends, I mean, the poem goes on and on and you're thinking like, maybe Robinson Crusoe's not even going to talk about Friday. Maybe she edited out Friday. Maybe by whatever point this poem was written, Friday was already so politically incorrect as a concept. You know, this kind of willing native slave of the imperialist white man that she just left it out, and then no, it's she. She waited till the end because that's when the emotion of Robinson Crusoe comes out. That's what he's really, the one thing he really cares about is Friday, and that's why the poem ends. Yeah. And it's not that Friday had just died. Friday died 17 years ago, 16 and a half years ago, and that's still he's mourning him as if he died yesterday. You know, it's, it's so interesting. A lot of my therapist friends, I have a few, have reported that it's often in the final four minutes of a therapy session. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That the, the, re- the real juice comes out, the confession or the deeper struggle. And it's universal. it universally occurs in that vector of t- time, which corresponds to the dramatic uh, monologue here. It's very and interesting. also, it reminded me of... Uh, it's funny because I don't drink, but it reminded me of like, you're 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 drinking with an Englishman, and you know he's talking to you about you know his wife, his job, and then right at the end, you know he's like suddenly confesses, my God, I've never been so miserable, I want to kill myself, you know, and then right at the very end, right when he's really drunk, you know, and I was thinking it's almost like Crusoe is getting drunker and drunker as he tells this story here, as he reads the poem. That's kind of how it feels to me that, as, the, as the truth comes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the sort of context for this dramatic monologue is at the local tavern. You know, it's a, um, a really mystifying stanza in the poem. Um, it's the, the, the stanza that begins with the words, dreams were the worst. And Robinson Crusoe is, is recounting um, some of, yeah. of his nocturnal phenomenology, some of his dreams. And he, he, uh, he says the following, dreams were the worst. Of course, I dreamed of food and love, but they were pleasant rather than otherwise. But then I dream of things like slitting a baby's throat mistaking it for a baby goat. I'd have nightmares of other islands stretching away from mine, infinities of islands, islands spawning islands like frogs' eggs turning into polywogs of islands, knowing that I had to live on each and every one eventually for ages, registering their flora, their fauna, their geography. Hmm. What do you make of that extraordinarily violent image? In the dream oh, of the of the baby, yeah, yes. Letting I I made a note, you know, that um, that great rhyme, like slitting a baby's throat, mistaking it for a baby goat. You know, that's why it took her 37 years to finish this poem to come up with that beautiful uh, yeah. and horrific uh, uh, rhyme. I mean, one. I mean, I'm running with the 
my current theory is that that a poem is an island, you know, more than a poet is an island, that that poems really are weirdly islands. You know, you read a book of poems and in general, each one kind of sits by itself, isolated from every other poem, like the poems don't really communicate with each other. Each poem kind of creates its own little world. And this mm. one in particular, and maybe this is like the horror, you know, of, uh, I think there's some Latin phrase for the horror of being a poet, the horror of having to endlessly write more and more poems and to just inhabit each one, one after the other, and never to end, you know, never to get back into the real world, you know. Mm. Well, I think also that they're not all poems are written down. I remember Celine in Journey to the End of the Night, he said that not all poets write and that, you know, poets who don't write are happier than those that do. But I think it's good that every poem has its own ecology and has its own dynamic, has its own Darwinian niche that it falls within and also its own laws of operation and and things of that nature so i think that's that's interesting and and cool yeah and to to link the um kind of two nodes of the stanza together mm. it's, i think it's really interesting that the um subconscious going deep into one's psyche in a dream state where, um, you know, not only are you doing something violent, but it's like uber violent. One of those, mm. one of those dreams that really um, could be described as Freudian horror. Um, so she goes inward or he goes inward into this state. And then that's become sublimated or transposed in this weird alchemy into creativity, into these. Oh, images. yeah. These images, beautiful images of generativity in terms of watching polywogs squiggling, if you've ever done that, and the mm. shallows of a lake or a pond. It's really quite mm, mesmerizing. Yeah. Mm. And also reminds me of kind of biblical sacrifice, you know, because I'm to some extent, uh, mm. a, you know, an observant Jew. And like <clears throat> you read the Old Testament and a lot of it is about uh, how do you sacrifice animals? And for what purpose, to what end? It's just a weird thing to think that Jews, who now are all, you know, doctors and stockbrokers, were at one time this group of people that went around methodically killing animals, pouring out their blood to God for some absurd reason, you know. And this reminds me of that. Like, it's like a tribal sacrifice. You've got to kill that baby to make new poems you know that's mm. kind of how the shamanic practice works my wife for a yeah, while I, she was studying african shamanic religion and they would kill these innocent chickens mm. uh sl slice their heads off a bunch of like middle-class women from phoenicia i shouldn't even say this yeah we talked uh, about this the chicken is the totemic animal of new york city oh yeah, is it? but the one thing I, I wanted to say also, the relative to this, that not all of them can I get to knowing how to live on each and every one, eventually for ages, and then and then next stanza starts just when I couldn't stand it. Yeah. Now this use of the pronoun it, you know, which is at the end of the first stanza, none of the books have ever got it right. 
Interesting, the yeah. It part is super duper interesting. But mm. then she leads into the stanza, and then Friday came. So in terms of this idea of sacrifice, it mm. starts getting really twisty. Like, in some odd way, did Friday become a sacrifice? Obviously, taking Friday himself signed, you know, was signing his death warrant because he was not, didn't have this immunity against measles or what have you. Yeah, interesting what, idea. Yeah. And then the crucifix kind of comes right, uh, you know, the, ni- the knife there on the shelf, it reeked of meaning like a crucifix. It lived. And that kind of comes in between the killing of the goat, the appearance of Friday and Friday's death. It's a fertility ritual. It's just the sort of thing that these Age of Discovery narratives uh-huh. were, were all over, probably, right? Some sort I mean, of... Ab- century. Oh, oh, I see, even earlier, yeah. How do you mean, like, they would find the natives and the natives would be engaged in these fertility rituals and they would write about it in there? How did these travel logs, Age of Discovery and, um, and beyond? Which you were saying, that was her field of interest was the 16th century writing, right? Isn't that what you said? Yeah, she liked 17th century writing in particular. She was, um, her, she claimed that she modeled herself after the metaphysical poet. Oh, uh-huh. I, that's what I was thinking. Marvell, John Donne. She liked how they used first person, that they were grounded in a descriptive universe. The poems were yearning t- towards something beyond the sum of their parts. Right. That metaphysical quality. You know, and I think she captures that beautifully. You know, she writes these descriptive poems, but there's always something hovering above and beyond it. The thing that creates these poems, if one is going to fall into what I find attractive in Sparrow's thesis that these islands are poems, um, are these volcanoes. Um, yeah. You know, the volcanoes, I think, vol- are very interesting. Yeah. She writes, a new volcano has erupted. First line, the paper says, and last week I was reading where some ship saw an island being born. So volcano is made out of hot things that come from out of the earth and mm-hmm. then emerge and form these peaks and uh, these rises that rise above the horizon line become visible that this internal i mean you know usually fire is associated with some sort of state of passion you know some overwhelming what cannot be controlled is has to be said has to be made and then and then she writes you know begins the second stanza well i had 52 miserable small volcanoes I could climb with a few slithery strides, volcanoes dead as ash heaps. And I think that 52 may refer not to 52 palms, but I think it may be, in this case, 52 years. Like, oh. how old was she in 72, plus or minus, when... She's 1911, she's, she's born. Yeah, so... She's 61. Yeah. Huh. But uh-huh. I think she may have, I'm guessing she may have been 52 when she left Brazil after her partner committed suicide. Uh, I thought her partner committed guy. suicide up in America. Oh, is that so? To, okay, I, that's I, what I, don't, I thought. I don't know. And that. 52 weeks in a year, 52 cards in a deck. I mean, I don't uh, know. 
Uh, I don't know if that means anything. I found myself interested in these numbers, but mostly in the number 17, which is the last line of the poem. And Friday, my dear Friday, died of measles 17 years ago come March. And I was thinking, you know, just the other day, like yesterday or something, I wrote a poem with the number 17 in it. And now I'm going to read it. It's called Fallen Change. (laughs) Some change fell out of my pocket onto the floor. 17 cents. Very good. Thank you. And when I write, uh, you know, numbers (laughs) and poems, it always has sort of a meaning. Not an exact meaning. You know, like 17 is a prime number. It's not divisible. And 17 is the number of syllables in a haiku. So it's this poem that I wrote is kind of a joke on a haiku. It's kind of a fake, whatever, a kind of a attack in a way on a haiku, which has seven, supposed to have 17 syllables. This one has 17 cents instead. And so but, I, maybe that 17 means something. Maybe that 52 means something. She's, you know, very smart, this uh, Elizabeth Bishop. Everything is highly conscious. Yeah. She's mm. deliberate. So, Sparrow, did 17 cents come out of your pocket? I, I didn't, uh, no, 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 uh, nothing fell out of my pocket. I, I mean, at various times in my life, various change has fallen out of my pocket, but this is not a true story. This is Got a it. fake story. I think what happened was I was lying in bed and I thought of the phrase, some change or something like that, or maybe, I think I was thinking of some change. I mean, it's a little bit has to do with, like, um, Obama, you know, change you can believe in. You know, it's a little bit about change, how we need to change. We all, you know, how you have to embrace change. (laughs) Does your your poem have 17 syllables? Uh, Let me check. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 7, 13, Seems to have 16 syllables. That's what I'm getting. Maybe you give it a like one <laughs> syllable title. No, but that's okay if it has the wrong number of syllables. That's true. Basha said the same. Okay, so this poem is called Crusoe in England. It's not very much about England. And the title is itself vague. Like where in England? England is a big place. So Crusoe is in this place, and we don't really know where it is. But we, I misremembered the title as Crusoe in London. But I think it is not London because he says the local museums asked me to leave everything to them. I think normally when you're in a place like London, you don't refer to the Royal Albert and Victoria Museum as the local museum. So I think he's somewhere small, but... It's interesting that he's in England and he's not talking about England. He's talking about where he was before England. And also, I think it's important to me. I mean, I'm of the opinion that Robinson Crusoe was the first novel. I mean, there's all sorts of different theories about this, but that's what I like to believe. And what was it? It was a hoax. It was written as a hoax. People thought this was a real diary by a real sailor who'd really been marooned on an island. People for years, you know, for the first few years, they took this as true. So that makes this poem a hoax on a hoax. This is like the hoax of Robinson Crusoe delivered as a further hoax where he 
here's what happens after he comes back to England. And the uh, part of uh, what a poem is, a poem is a place, I think Elizabeth Bishop is saying, where a fictitious character can tell the truth. Because if you read, I did read Robinson Crusoe when I went through my 18th century period in around 1985, around the time I met my wife. I remember I was one of the first times I was hanging out with her. I was on the subway reading The Rights of Man to her by Thomas Paine, which is kind of embarrassing to me right now. But um, I went through a period of reading lots of 18th century stuff. And then the story, the whole poem begins very weirdly with Crusoe reading the newspaper. A new volcano has erupted, the papers say. Like, what does that mean? Why does it begin with him reading the newspaper? And my only theory about that is that Daniel Defoe, who wrote Robinson Crusoe, was a journalist. And that, as I'm saying, Robinson Crusoe was kind of a fake, true story, fake journal that was discovered. Well, the, well, the, the one thing I'd say, though, just to, is that you're saying it's the first English novel. No, I'm saying it's the first novel. Because I think that, you know, not only Tale of Genji, but also Cervantes right. had written Don Quixote, which also has a um, spoof right. aspect to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's quite yeah, I mean, possible that it's yeah. not the first novel. The history of novels, like Don Quixote is, uh, you know, you know that Cervantes is an exact uh, contemporary of Shakespeare, born the same year, died the same year. So that's a long time. If Cervantes is the first novel, then when's the second novel? Robinson Crusoe? Like, like it's a long time from the first novel. You know, what? it seems to me that Don Quixote is a, is a parody of a romance. I mean, that's what Cervantes thought it was. But from uh, Robinson Crusoe, you can see novels start to exist a few years later, what we call novels. I mean, yes, it's true there are these Japanese tales. I'm not sure if they're novels, but I'm just I'm saying... I like the idea that the novel began, <laughs> and I like the idea that in a poem, that's where the the fictitious person can really tell the truth, because in the novel Robinson Crusoe, it's 18th century. It's very literal. It's just a journal. This is what I did each day, whereas in novels now, what we think of as a novel has a kind of symbolic aspect to it, like, like Miss Havisham in Dickens. She has her wedding cake in her bedroom with her. 25 years later, she still has the same wedding cake. Like, that's not intended as some kind of detail, like a description of somebody's suburban dining room. That has some kind of meaning, some kind of larger meaning. But when Defoe was writing, things were just like, a, it was like a newspaper article. It's just like, you know, Robinson Crusoe first, he made a knife. Next, he looked for food. You know, then he found some timber. You know, it's just recited, has no higher meaning. It's not, it doesn't have the symbolic level that a, that a, uh, a novel, as we understand it, has. The inner life of, uh, of Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> I, like the, I like the title. I like, I, like, I like the idea of the poem taking place after the novel. Um, works of art that explore passage of time, how after some sort of defining experience, mm. intrigued me. Like the Grateful Dead had this song. Um, it was a later song, "The Days Between," huh. and it was just about life in those pockets of time that aren't like full of flourish and 
aren't aren't self-defining ordinary mm. time. Isn't that what the Catholic um, liturgy refers to it as? Ordinary it's time. What? Ordinary time. Ordinary time. Ordinary time. I, or Neil Young's um, song, After the Gold Rush. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think for me, okay. I just thought of myself coming back from India in 1987. And, you know, I spent two and a half months with my guru in Calcutta. And it was weird, strange, kind of uh, exalting, but difficult and odd, just full of odd events and suddenly i was back taking a subway home from the jfk airport looking at hasidim and just thinking what am i doing back here like how can i live back in this normal world that i that i lived in my whole life now it's meaningless yeah and then you know once we're in that out of place scene and um you know i think that you're right sparrow in terms of it mostly being a catalog of woes you know, the one thing where I feel that something else has taken over is, as we've discussed, most of the poem is description. And it seems to me that it's in this realm of description in which there is, you know, what on a human level we might characterize as, I'm going to say affection, but I think that mm-hmm. sometimes we would call it love. That there's this love of phraseology, of the um, wires touching, of these couplets, these moments of pause, of opening, her description of the water spouts, her, you know, I would say there's some Gulliver's travels here. Mm. Um, you know that that that's very much present in the in the second stanza, this perspective, and when one is reflecting back on past experience, there often is a perspective spaz or proportions become absurd. Mm. You know, very much like that wedding cake on Ms. Havisham's uh, dining room table, you know, Mm. for 25 plus years. I forget how this may be longer. So that's the one thing I would say. And part of that, I feel, is also encoded in the use of sound, you know, which seems to me is conventionally characterized as the basic building blocks of the poem. This repetition on hissing and even yeah. this longing for the kettle that can contain and control the hissing, you know, which also is an Edenic reference to the snake, the hissing of the snake. <laughs> but in this case, it's all this sort of other forms of fauna. And then you know, these uh, gulls and the goats, the ba, 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 shriek, 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 ba, shriek, ba. And, you know, also reflecting back on this kind of, you know, the sad things of being on the island prior to, to you know, Friday showing up. And then there's this little lift is, uh, you know, for example, she talks about Mount Despair and things like yeah. that. Yeah is that there's a certain amount of what the French called nostalgia de la boue, uh, nostalgia for the mud. Uh, that's that oh, sort yeah. of post-lapsarian you know, feeling of a kind of nostalgia. Even if it sucked, it nevertheless was coincident with a time in my life in which I felt incredibly free. 
I felt incredibly empowered. My sanction was high. Like, I remember that, you know, I remember times in my life, some of my best times of my life were when I was incredibly hard up and didn't have much money in my pocket, um. you know, maybe 17 cents. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, I can dig that aspect too. I guess for me, I had sort of happened onto this idea of the island as being the garden. And I wanted to relate a personal anecdote that goes back to my last day with Omar Perez. Oh. Yeah, I was driving him down to New York, and so we're on the Tuconic. And he said, well, we were talking about some of the things that happened in his three months here. And one of them was that somebody with whom he's associated, who was a, a, you know, sort of a literary person, was asking him to do things that he was not comfortable doing. And he said that this person he had invited into his garden, he had allowed them entrance into his garden. And while they were walking in the rows and were admiring the garden and maybe giving some tips, that was useful. But once they started to interfere with his garden, at that mm. point, he, you know, led them to the gate and kicked them out. Because every artist has a space that they must protect in order to maintain its integrity, in order to maintain the volcano or the arrangement or control the volcano or to do mm. something, you know, you've got your towel, you've got your knife and your trousers and your parasol and your mm -hmm. sort of sectioned off space your and you island. have to guard your garden. You know, mm. that's what Voltaire didn't say is cultivate your garden and guard it. Hmm. But maybe that's what the end of the poem, you know, with the passing of Friday, with the return to England, with being taken out of his garden. And that's what perhaps informs that sense of, you know, a weird form of exile. Crusoe is hmm. lamenting. Hmm. I really like that. Very yeah. nice. Yeah, it is maybe, making. Maybe that's why um, the narrator is kicking down the volcanoes to protect the uh, protect the garden. Yeah, that was the other thing around the volcanoes is that I connected it with the little prince. Remember the oh, little yeah. prince goes to the planet and he has a um, a broom and he's cleaning out the volcano. He's dusting off the volcano, keeping his uh, volcanoes clean, even the volcanoes that are dormant. Yeah, and these are dormant. These are all dead as ash heaps, which so they're not, they're not very, uh, you know, active. They're not full of fire. And they're so strangely small. I never heard of small volcanoes. I don't think it's really possible to have a tiny little volcano. You can walk up in three strides to the top of your volcano. I never heard of that. And then also the, another thing. That I, something. <laughs> what's that? I said, so she must be saying something. And then at the end of the first stanza, when she says, but my poor old island still unrediscovered, unrenameable. None of the books has ever got it right. How can the island be undiscoverable if Crusoe was on the island and was was discovered on it? Unrediscovered, right? Yeah, and unrenameable. Unrenameable. Yeah, it's a strange, strange locution. But I mean, how can the island be lost if 
some ship got Crusoe off the island, so don't they know where they were? And there, I think there's a faint suggestion in this poem that, that cr- the whole thing is in Crusoe's mind, that the whole his whole experience was just... And maybe like having a mother who's come to think of it, who's schizophrenic. You know, you, you're kind of aware of like, people can be living for 12 years on an island, but they didn't go anywhere. They're just sitting in their room hmm. thinking they're on an island. Yeah, hmm. it sounds like poetry. I, I wanted to say this, and I've got to say this, that I hate metaphors. You know, I hate this kind of thing that she's doing in this poem, and she does it so beautifully. That's the thing that, that fascinates me about her. Like, I feel like pretty much every metaphor in every poem infuriates me with its stupidity. And her metaphors are absolutely uh, unique, sharp, visual. Barrow, I have to ask you this. In the, um, you know, the fifth stanza or so, I often gave way to self-pity. Do you oh, see yeah. that stanza? And now she has an idea. She says, uh, in quotes, pity should begin at home. So the more pity I felt, the more I felt at home. That strikes me as something that might register on your dopey poet idea scale. Really? I don't think so. I mean, I'm like in love with Elizabeth Bishop. I I love her as much as I love Elizabeth Warren. And I just, I I refuse to accept that as a uh, cliché. Yeah, I think it's a mantra. I think she's creating her own mantra. I never heard it anywhere. The more pity I felt, the more I felt at home. It's it's not something I've heard before. It and even the crazy uh, proverb, "Pity should begin at home." Whoever heard that? This is what it is to be gruntled. Gruntled? Yeah. The common uh, word is disgruntled. But oh, nobody really knows what feeling gruntled is. Maybe it's. Uh, <laughs> You know, feeling at home because you're having a pity party. I think it's something like that. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.